Does the Orthodox world treat individuals who are single like second-class citizens? If so, is this something fundamental to Judaism, given our emphasis on the family? Or is there more that we can do so that singles will be full members of our communities? I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Last week, Tali Rosenbaum and I released a podcast as part of our Intimate Judaism series entitled Singles, Sex, and Orthodoxy. It generated significant response, and I felt that the discussion needed to continue. For that reason, I invited Rabbi Josh Uter, formerly the rabbi of the Stanton Street Shul in Manhattan and currently a resident of Jerusalem, to join me on this podcast. Rabbi Uter has his own unique perspective on the issues facing singles in the Orthodox community, both as a single man himself and as someone who has served as the Rav of a community. Rabbi Joshua Uter was ordained in 2003 from Yeshiva University. He's also an alumnus of Yeshivat Haaretzion. He is currently a member of the Rabbinical Council of America, the International Rabbinic Fellowship, co-chairing the Ethics Committee, and the Rabbis Without Borders Fellowship. Rabbi Uter is an award-winning blogger and writes and lectures on various issues pertaining to law, theology, and society through the unique perspective of a second-generation rabbi with diverse personal and professional experiences and interests. In 2012, Rabbi Uter was acknowledged by the National Jewish Outreach Program as one of the top 10 Jewish influencers for creative and strategic use of social media to positively impact the Jewish community. In 2014, he was named one of PC Magazine's top 100 people to follow. And in 2018, the JTA listed Rabbi Uter as one of the top 50 Jews to follow on Twitter. He's also guest blogged for JDate and contributed to Jewish Values Online. I joined Rabbi Uter in his apartment in Nachlaot in Jerusalem, where I recorded the following interview. Rabbi Josh Uter, thank you very much for being with me today on the Orthodox Conundrum, our premiere episode this season. Thank you very much for having me. So this podcast is in some ways a follow-up on a podcast, also on Jewish Coffee House, called Intimate Judaism, where last week in episode 14, Tali Rosenbaum and I talked about some of the challenges facing single Orthodox Jews. We largely dealt with the halachic, psychological, and social issues of sex outside of marriage— Today, I want to focus on that, certainly, but also on the communal aspects of the problem, singles within orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. So, Rabbi Uter, you made Aliyah how long ago? Uh, a little more than five years. Just and past the five-year mark in uh, a couple of weeks ago. Mazal tov. Thank you. And you used to be a congregational rabbi in New York. In yes, Manhattan, at right? the Stanton Street Show on the Lower East Side. As a rabbi, as a single rabbi, what were the challenges that you faced that were specific and endemic to being a single rabbi rather than a married rabbi? So, the first one was simply getting hired. When I was looking for jobs, most synagogues will not even interview or consider an unmarried rabbi. Sometimes it's explicit in the job description. Sometimes if I'd call up and inquire, then I'd hear, oh, they're only you know looking for a married couple. And sometimes they'll say, oh, sure, in theory, we'd be looking for one. But in practice, behind closed doors, they wouldn't. The story that I heard with my shul was that the men on the board were the ones who really wanted a married couple because they wanted the rabbi's wife to do 
a lot of women's programming. My predecessor's wife did a lot of stuff with the women for the shul. Probably and they for free. To, exactly. They want to continue it. And it was the women on the board who said, no, you can't just expect the rabbi's wife to do stuff for free. You know, I understand it for certain institutions, for others that claim to be, you know, progressive, you know, in that way would also assume the rabbi's wife would, ha- of course, do stuff for the shul unpaid. And I'm like, well, isn't like level one feminism, you know, equal pay for equal work And here? You're demanding a woman do stuff, like put in her time and her effort for no other reason than the guy she happened to marry. I'm not a communal rabbi. I've never been one. But yeah. I do know that this is a very, very common problem. Many Rebbitsons have complained about that specific yeah. issue. And I know some people uh, who like week one said, you know, my wife is raising family. My wife has a job. She is not going to do anything for the shul. And some have set that up, you know, right at the very beginning. And other times, a rabbi's wife may think, oh, this is a good idea. And they start stuff. But then once you start, how do you back away? And then that can also be a bit of a conundrum. So I don't know how, you know, people navigate that. My um, my father was a congregational rabbi, so I knew it from one perspective. So for me, like the first primary issue that I had was simply getting hired. Of the single rabbis that I knew in New York, which were not many, all were somewhat unusual situations. I don't want to mention it details, but like they, they were not your typical pulpits. Uh, Stantry wasn't a typical pulpit either. Um, and I in what say, way? How was it different? Oh, many. It was a very unusual shul. It was... It's on the Lower East Side, right? It was on the Lower East Side. For a while, it had, it had a transient population, but what brought it together with the resurgence was the shul had been sold years before I got there, and the synagogue sort of came together to fight the sale. So it wasn't like Hashkafa, you know, sort of brought together the resurgence. It was, you know, we're going to save this shul. So when you have that, you've got like a much different category. You had a mix of older and younger, a really diverse group in terms of ideology, background, education, and just people. It was a very diverse congregation. And when I took over, when the previous rabbi had left, there was a lot of work that needed to get done in terms of really building a solid foundation. So it wasn't your typical shul for any of those reasons. Are there a lot of singles in that shul? It was a small synagogue, you know, comparatively, but we did have a significant percentage of them being unmarried, some of whom specifically wanted the Lower East Side because they didn't want the single scene of the Upper West Side and let alone Washington Heights. Um, you know, if they didn't feel they'd even fit in there religiously. It was a much less pressurized atmosphere amongst the unmarried people. Like, it was, you know, it was much cooler. It wasn't your meat market thing where you go to see others and be seen. And I, I think that was very attractive to a lot of the people that were there. You, as a single rabbi, you talk about the difficulty of being hired. Once you were the Mara yeah. Asra, the rabbi of the shul, were there challenges that were specific to you as a single rabbi from your perspective, things that were difficult for you as someone who's not married? Um, in some cases, yeah. I mean, I had been, I'd actually, when I'd started the synagogue and been seeing someone seriously and, you know, we had broken up uh, afterwards and you know, something that I had noticed, you know, just doing the rabbinic job is that it can be very emotionally draining because you're giving of yourself to a lot of, you know, a lot of people. And, you know, it's a wonderful part of the job to be able to connect, but it's also important, you know, to come home to have a space to recharge. And that's, you know, super necessary, particularly to avoid burnout. Burnout rates for clergy, particularly uh, rookies, are really, really high. Hmm. If you don't know what to expect. So for me, you know, one challenge was, you know, how do you balance like the emotional side of things? And something that I learned to appreciate as I went on in the, you know, years later in the synagogue 
was how much more important it was for me to be in a good marriage rather than a so-so or, you know, bad one. Like I would, you know, I would say, you know, Torah says, Lotov adam it's not good for man to be alone, which is, could be a truism, but that doesn't mean things can't be worse. <laughs> because I was single, that enabled me to have at least some space where I could recharge, whereas were I in, say, a draining marriage, that would have been nailed from both sides. And that would have been particularly challenging. It may have affected other things too. Um, well, how about for counseling, for example? So it's interesting you mentioned counseling. I did a, a bit of counseling, you know, some marriage, some not. I had some degree of training and my approach was, you know, I tried not to inject myself in people's lives. And like people had to know I was always there and accessible, but also my approach was, you know, don't get intrude, you know, unless they want you to be there. And I had some degree of training, you know, pastoral counseling training from YU, which, you know, I think was super helpful, but even more important than that was knowing what my limits are. It may have been, say, important for me to, you know, nudge a couple to go to a professional couples counselor. Because, you know, even if I were married, that doesn't make you an expert on being married, even though for some reason, a lot of people think that way, or simply being married is expertise in dating. It's like, no, you you have expertise in one relationship, yours, that alone doesn't mean you're an expert in everything else. But you know what I would guess, and fair or not, I'm assuming a lot of married people would be reluctant to go to a marriage counselor or a rabbi or any other clergy person who himself or herself isn't married, only coming from the perspective of, oh, this person can't possibly understand. I'm not right. saying that's true. You it's, don't have to be divorced to help a couple that's going exactly, through a divorce. Exactly. And, and it's partially fair. What I can say is, sometimes I was able to rely on my own experiences, not just like being married or unmarried, just like being people and being relationships. So, you know, if someone you know, was going to complain about a significant other, how they were doing it, I can think back to either myself or other things, you know, experience I've seen either, you know, personally or with friends to sort of, you know, try to figure out what's going on. Don't forget when, when people come to rabbis, you know, my approach to pastoral counseling was not that I'm going to solve your problems because odds are I can't. I can listen. You know, I've also found that often people know exactly what they want to do anyway, and they just need some help fleshing that out, and I can help guide them there. And if there was a case where I thought, again, someone needed more professional specialized help, then I can do stuff to sort of nudge them along the way. So one example of something that I would do is I would never suggest people go to couples counseling, because if you say couples counseling— there's, you know, some like, you know, black, you know, cloud hanging over that, oh, there's a problem in our relationship. And I said, and I would sooner call it communications counseling, you know, because how do you two, you know, speak to each other to work out your particular issues if you're like talking past each other? Functionally, it's the same thing, but it's putting a slightly, it's putting a different spin on it. It would sort of take away that edge of like, you know, our relationship is falling apart. It's like, I don't know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but you know, talk to a communications counselor that will at least help you just talk out your issues and then maybe come to some resolution. Because I was very clear, like I don't know what's best for people's lives. The best I can do is try to help guide them to what they really want. The only time I may intervene is if I noticed that there was a real severe problem. So like when friends of mine were dating, uh, this is actually kind of when I first got this insight. When friends of mine in Washington Heights were dating, people were getting engaged and married that I never would have put them together. And, you know, that was a really great lesson early on for me that I have no idea what's best for people, right? <laughs> they're happy. They're having a successful marriage. The fact that I wouldn't have thought of it or I thought, how could that work is completely irrelevant, right? They're happy. 
fantastic. And that was a great learning experience for me to realize, you know, they're fine. The only time I would intervene was when there was a case where I saw there was actual and abusive relationship, uh, not even physical, but uh, emotionally abusive, like you know, not just red flags, but like blaring sirens that even I could notice. So if I would see something like that, then I would, you know, interject like, hey, you, you've got to call this off. This is an unhealthy relationship. And I would explain why and try to be as clear as possible. So clearly from your perspective, you feel with good reason that there's nothing lacking in your having been single in terms of your ability to counsel married couples. But what about from their perspective in the shul? Did you see a reluctance among certain people to rely on you in any particular way? That's hard to tell because all I know is the people who did come to me for help. But if people said, I don't feel comfortable speaking to the rabbi about this, it's not like they would tell me about this. Well, how about things like Nita Shilas or various other questions about sex and halacha that a married couple might have? Right. So those didn't come up, or at least those didn't get directed to me, which means either one of two things. Either one, people flat out didn't care, or people asked someone else, which as far as I'm concerned is fine. Like, a congress once apologized that she missed a shear because she went to another shear. Like, that's fantastic. You're going to shear. Like, you know, you're, you're happy to be here, but like you're going and learning something. I considered my myself as a resource and one of many. And, you know, I set halachic policy for the shul. You know, that's where, you know, I would really put my foot down and say, Amar Da'atra, and even there would pick my battles. But in terms of rabbinic guidance, I felt my role is I need to be available. People need to know I'm available. And let's say they, if someone were to come up and contact me if I need, you know, certain help, then it would be my job to find, okay, here's someone I think you can work with. And if not be a direct guide, then be an indirect guide to find someone else who could do a better job. I don't recall getting that as feedback from the board even of people complaining, I don't feel comfortable talking to the rabbi about stuff, but people have a lot of issues. Sometimes, you know, they'd feel comfortable talking about, sometimes not. I thought intrusion was certainly not going to help. I certainly can conceive that it was possible that at some point someone didn't feel comfortable talking to me about things, but that much never got back to me. So let me ask you a question that I've struggled with myself I'm asking you now not as a single rabbi, but just as somebody who has been asked questions as a rabbi. When you're talking to singles, this is something that came up in the podcast, Intimate Judaism, the Tali and I did last week. How do you advise a congregant or a friend or a confidant who wants advice about sex outside the context of marriage? How do you navigate the discussion where you can remain non-judgmental, yeah. open to what they're saying, while at the same time not giving the implicit permission that halacha wouldn't provide? Yeah. So the way that I would handle such things is I'd be very clear you know, this is what halacha is, this is what you can do, this is what you can't do. But a lot of people in my show weren't observant to begin with. So I did not insist on certain things. So let's say we would have a couple that lived together before marriage. If they were to ask me, hey, Rabbi, can we do this? I would say no, but they didn't. And I wasn't going to make that a focal point of the pulpit because you have to, you know, pick your battles and what to choose from. And this was something I picked up from a Chabad rabbi in uh, Chicago. Building up the relationship is super important because people aren't going to keep everything. But as long as you have a relationship, they may keep more than they otherwise would have. So I would always give halacha straight. You know, if someone asked Mutar Asr, but my, my approach to giving a psak for years had been, I'm going to assume, no matter what I tell you, you're going to do whatever you want anyway. Both lenient, be it strict, you're going to do whatever you do. My job is to say, here's what I think the halacha is, 
and show my work. Explain how did I get here? What are the sources I'm relying on? What's the method that I use to reach this conclusion? If there's a dispute, why do I think one opinion is better than the other? Go through my whole criteria. No, granted, not everyone likes that. I've been told, just tell me what to do. I don't want to have to think. That's a direct quote from someone. <laughs> um, but when that's my approach to halacha, it's easy to separate the two because I can say, here's what ideal halacha is, but let's say you don't keep it. Well, what do you do then? And you know, we're very inconsistent about where we set up these lines about what to do with people, who, wh- where the lines of observance are, when you get kicked out of the community, when you don't. And my take was, you know, I'm just going to leave it there. You know, if anyone would ask, here's what the law is. But assume, again, people are just going to do whatever it is that they're going to do anyway. And, you know, I'm not going to say, like, that's okay from a halachic perspective, but that'll be okay from a communal perspective. Um, so that's how I managed. Sometimes, of course, those two ideas, halachic perspective and communal perspective, will intersect. One of the most common questions that really relates to both of them is, if somebody is unmarried, is going to have sex anyway, regardless of what the rabbi tells him or her, yeah. should she go to the mikvah? So I asked Rav's Zvulun Lieberman, uh, who passed away years ago about this, I uh, took Nita with him about it. And, you know, I'd asked, like, you know, sh- should we do this? And he said no. He was a rabbi in the Syrian community, of which I don't really know a whole lot. But his approach was the reason why you don't want to give that advice as a proactive halach is yes. On a one level, halachically, it makes sense and you would make things a bit easier. But once that becomes the norm, what you're going to have is an exacerbation of not just premarital sex, but everything that goes along with it. Uh, Unwed pregnancies, possibly STDs. It would be, how to put this, to borrow a line from another response, uh, by normalizing this behavior, you would be nechshal a whole bunch of others. Because even if you would say like an ideal situation is like, okay, we'll go to mikvah first realistically, are people going to do that? And the answer is probably not. They'll just be like, oh, okay, like this is fine and this is normal. So yeah, like it was one of those things where on a technical halachic level, yes, this may be correct, but once you get out in the real world, there's so many negative consequences that comes up. Um, and to borrow another idiom you know, from uh, Ruf Tendler and one of my uh, father's teachers, uh, Chacham Yosef Ha'ur, it's the difference between looking at things like a Rosh Yeshiva or a Rav. In Rav Tendler's analogy, he used to say, like, you know, God forbid you want a Rosh Yeshiva paskening halacha for you. You want a Rosh Yeshiva to paskin your halacha like you want a mathematician to build your bridges. The mathematician knows the math better than a physicist, but that doesn't mean he knows what to do with it in the real world. And same thing in the role of a Rosh Yeshiva and a Rav. A Rosh Yeshiva may know a whole bunch, a ton of theory, but a Rav has to know people. The story that I was told, whether it's apocryphal or not, is that one time Rav Soloveitchik, that's all, paskin like the Arach HaShulchan, which is a normal thing to do, but someone was surprised because the Mishnah Brewer had ruled more strictly than the Arach HaShulchan in this particular case and asked him about it, to which the Rav supposedly answered, the Mishnah Brewer, the Chavetz Chaim, was a tzaddik. And a tzaddik is machmir. He's strict. Yeah. The Arach HaShulchan was a Rav. And a Rav is Mekel. He's yeah. lenient. So here we're not even talking about changing halacha, right? It's talking about what do you do with people in your community who aren't observing halacha? And that's a separate question. And, you know, you have people who say don't keep kosher. You have people who don't keep Shabbat. So what do you do? Right? And for me, I would put it all in the same thing. Like I would talk about, well, here are the halachot of Shabbat. Do people keep Shabbat? Maybe yes, maybe no. I had a wonderful conversation with someone a half hour on Stam Yenam and Yayan Nasach, going through everything. Did the person start keeping it more seriously? Did he start buying Yayan Mevushal? I have no idea. 
but at least I was able to have that conversation. And yeah, for me, that was more important than anything else. And I think it should apply to, you know, that was my approach, at least. I understand every community is going to have their red lines, but, you know, the attitude that I picked up from the Chabad rabbi is, you know, if the goal is to try to get people to do mitzvot, any additional mitzvah is a win. And, you know, if, again, not compromising halacha, but by not, you know, pushing them away because of a particular halacha means they're going to keep something else, or they're going to ask my advice somewhere else down the line, that's one other mitzvah that people would be doing that they otherwise might not. And it's a very different approach to managing a community, particularly one where people might not be fully observant in the first place. I want to present something that somebody sent to me in response to the podcast they did the other day. I'd like your take on that. Sure. Somebody, after listening to the podcast, said, and I'm quoting, as a whole, I feel that the Jewish approach to sexuality is terrible and has caused a lot of shame and guilt to me personally, this person is single, to me personally and probably many others. While we cannot ignore the halachot related to sexuality, we also need to promote a different healthy attitude towards sexuality. I feel what we are really doing is just encouraging people to repress their sexuality up until marriage. I think it would be better to approach some sort of middle ground in relation to both the halacha and the mental health aspect. Okay. What do you think about that? Um, well, I don't know what this person has in mind as an alternative. You know, one thing that is really important to kids, early, the way I've understood it, is that, you know, when you talk about the Jewish approach to sexuality, I mean, not only is that super complicated, but there's a huge difference between in and out of marriage, right? In marriage, it's kadosh. I mean, we call marriage kiddushin. There's something sacred about it. Outside of marriage, it isn't. It's the same action, but the context really redefines what it is that you're doing. Now, when you're talking about redefining halacha, that gets into bigger questions about, you know, what the halachic process is and what people are looking for. If people say, here's what I want to do and I don't want to feel guilty about it, that's a whole separate question. I mean, now you're talking about getting rid of cognitive dissonance. I, I did a shear once on, does Judaism care about your feelings? And, or sorry, yeah, does Torah care about your feelings or something like that, or halacha? And sometimes it absolutely does. There are certain adjustments you will find halacha make to accommodate people's emotional state. And there are other times when it simply doesn't. But if you approach religion that my emotional needs always have to be taken care of and will take primacy over the rules, then in my opinion, you're not really worshiping the religion, you're worshiping yourself. And you want to do what you want and you want to feel good about it. You know, we're, we're heading into Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, there's an acknowledgement that everyone sins, but there's a very different attitude in saying, I sin, I know it sins, and I'm going to try to do better, versus I'm going to do what I want, I'm going to sin or you know, break halacha, but I also want to feel emotionally okay with it. And I don't think Torah works that way across the board. And I would also question the idea of what the religion is, because you know, what someone would be seeking is, here's what I want to do. I want to do it guilt-free and keep up my identity of being a good Jew, despite not following these rules. You know, something else that came up a lot in New York, and I heard this from non-Jewish friends of mine, was that you had Jewish men that would troll, oh, not troll, but like go to... Uh, um, let's say, more open websites, let's say OkCupid, where you've got Jews and non-Jews on there, and would specifically look for non-Jewish women to hook up with, because, you know, as far as I'm, I mean, I don't have to explain why people would hook up, but why specifically non-Jewish women is, 
if you're going outside of your community, you can still maintain your reputation as being, you know, a good person because, you know, Jewish communities are small. If you sleep around, it's going to get around. Well, going outside of the community doesn't count probably in their minds. Well, there are two things. One is a matter of it not counting, which halakhically doesn't make sense. But even that aside, you're able to do it without that cognitive dissonance or hurting your reputation. Hmm. And that's where I think it really comes in. If how do you do what you want to do? while maintaining, you know, this impression that you want to give to other people. So I would say in response to the question, you know, what is your approach to Judaism altogether? There are rules. You want to keep it. You don't want to keep it. You've got free will to do that. But to say, we need to change the rules to adjust to meet, match other people, because otherwise they're going to feel bad about what they do and impose that on the religion, you know, carte blanche is a huge ask and in my opinion, really has a has a fundamentally different understanding of what religion is supposed to be about. That's something which I've dealt with often. People will say to me something similar to what you're discussing. They want religion to bend, or halacha to bend to their needs. And at times, as you said, yeah. halacha does. There certainly are moments where it does. There's values clarification. Sometimes halacha will take someone's feelings into account, other situations into account. But even if, and this might sound almost heretical, I can tell somebody, this is what halacha says. And if you choose not to do it, I can't tell you whether you're right or wrong. It's really your decisions between you and God. It's between you and your spouse, between you and your partner. I can't really discuss that at that point. However, right. don't blame halacha and make halacha say that what you're doing is okay. Halacha says it's wrong. Whether or not you want to follow the halacha, whether or not halacha is right for you, so to speak, is really a decision for you to make, not me. Right. So that's a fantastic point that I would sometimes say, too, of like— I'm not the judge. God is the judge. You know, we say that a whole bunch. You know, we're going to be saying that soon when Russia's coming up. Too. Yeah. Exactly. All I can say is, here's what halacha says you have to do, and here's what halacha says you can't do. How you're going to get judged by that, like if God takes into account extenuating circumstances, not my call. You know, we don't even have regular bate din. If we did, I still don't sit on one. So I'm in no position to judge. I can say, here's what is, you know, the law. Do it or not. I can't control that, do it or not, I can't judge about that. And I'm fine leaving that in God's hands, is, you know, not my thing. Yeah, and I, I, so I think that, that is a very you know, important point. Let's move on to a social level. Do you think that people can do more to include singles as part of their communities? Is that something which is an active problem for a lot of people? So it, it's definitely a problem for some people. I, do, I haven't done surveys about this. I had an exchange with um, a friend of mine in the pages of the Ford a couple of years ago about this, where, you know, I had a you know, different approach to the singles crisis where people say, oh, there's a shit of crisis. And I had this idea that there really isn't a shit of crisis. There's nothing specific about it. You've got people who are lonely. You've got people who want to get married who can't find someone. That's not exclusive to Jews at all. You find that all over the place. There's certain things that may be, you know, more specific quirks to Jews. But if you're looking to get married, you need to be interested in someone who's interested in you, right? You know, and unless you force someone to marry you that they don't want to marry you, or you marry the first person who's willing, even if you're not into them, that's what you're stuck with. You know, you can set people up, you know, for you know years. And if you just don't find that match where both people want to be with each other. There's not a lot you can do. And I, I always thought there wasn't something specific. And one of the things she responded to about that was, you know, just how isolating it was for her in a synagogue, not just, you know, as a female, you know, has their own levels of exclusion. That's a different issue. Right? Exactly. But when you look into, say, your programming, you know, so much of it is focused around family or, you know, even, let's say, simchas. Right. You know, you've got bar mitzvahs, you've got bris, you've got, you know, all these sorts of you know, life cycle things that happen, which you as an individual, you know, may feel excluded by uh, in my own shul. You know, I, I know it's a weird metric to say 
people didn't complain about something like this, but you know, the more that I thought about it, like, no, 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 the fact that people don't complain about something in shul, like normally you say, in lower inu the fact that you didn't see it isn't a proof. But when it comes to no one complained in a shul, I think that's actually significant. Yeah. <laughs> like no one complained about this. Oh, okay. People not complaining in a shul is itself a pretty big chiddish, So Right. So, you know, the question, the way that I tried to handle matters of inclusion was to treat people as equally as possible. And you know, this was just my approach of, you know, you can give people equal treatment or special treatment. And the easiest way to normalize people is to treat everyone normally. And the more that you single out a particular group or category, yes, you're trying to serve them, but you could also be isolating them as a separate distinct category. So what you're referring to is something which Tali said in our podcast, which is that singles is not a demographic. Exactly. It's it's a state. And like, so... In terms of what people are looking for, you know, it's hard. The more that you focus on one or the other per their state, the more so, and this will apply to everything else. And then the more you try to focus on every little subgroup, the people who don't fit into any subgroup just feel isolated because they're not mentioned. Then, you know, they'll try to come in like, oh, well, I'm you know, sort of this category in class. So by flattening things out, I think that helps immensely. And that's what a shul can do, like, institutionally. And that doesn't mean, and it can be tricky of, like, you know, you just have programs. You know, some people may want family programming, and I wouldn't say don't do for family programming. And you know, try to be responsive of, like, if people say, here's what we want, then try to provide as much as possible. An element that I'm not sure any shul can do is if you feel like an outsider, you feel like an anomaly because everyone is something and you're not. And, you know, this could be everyone in Shul is married and you're single, uh, or it seems everyone in Shul has kids and you don't have kids. That's more of a personal thing, which I think rabbis need to be sensitive to. But I'm not sure how that would work on a communal level, because that's not structurally to the Shul. It's, you know, your reaction to, say, the people around you, and you're, you're, and it's certainly difficult. But Yeah, like, but what would a community do? Meaning, I realize the Shul may not be able to do anything per se, but what should married couples, maybe you have some insight into what a person who's married, how he or she should relate to their single community members. Right, so my approach to all of these things is you deal with on a case-by-case basis, only because... I've met so many people who have not just different, but mutually exclusive needs. So to come up with a, you know, vast policy, I don't think is smart because what may work well for one person may totally put off someone else. Conveying an attitude of like someone's a neb until they get married. If this is what congregants have as an attitude, you can try to dispel that notion. But rabbis have been trying to change congregants' minds for years with little success. I think that a rabbi can certainly be mindful about what to teach and how to teach it. So, you know, if the rabbi would talk about, oh, the importance of getting married and having a family and like the family is the center of Jewish life. Okay, you know, it is. But if you know you have single people there, realize like what you're doing is also alienating them. And you can think it's like, oh, but it's a, you know, bracha that they're going to have in the future. Well, one, maybe, maybe not. You don't know that. And two, in the present, you're just saying you don't you know, really count by this. You know, I'll give an example where, where something like this happened. Why you as a Chag HaSmicha every four years? So when I graduated, I had just missed one. So I didn't have one until four years after I officially finished my rabbinical school. So when I had my Chag HaSmicha, it was the first one that Richard Joel was president of YU of. And in the course of his uh, talk, he, you know, he said, you know, thank your parents. You know, it's like, okay, fine. And I remember he threw in this line, and don't forget to thank your spouses, without whom this wouldn't have been possible. 
And I'm like, unless my Bashert was in the office doctoring my test to like make sure I pass, that's just an insulting statement. Um, And I clearly is possible. Yes. Like I, I believe I proved that, you know, Uh, and I actually spoke to him, you know, about it after, you know, friend of the family. And, you know, I, it was one of those things that, you know, really hit home of like, you know, I wasn't personally offended by it. Cause like, you know, I've learned like, yeah, people say stuff, you know, fine. But it like, that was my first real experience of like, yeah, now I get, you know, what this whole exclusionary language means. It's you're talking about things that, you know, clearly, you know, about the greatness of something that clearly not everyone has. It's something which I think you know, rabbis need to be careful about when they speak. I think that's the best thing they can do. It doesn't mean you shy away from certain topics, but when you talk about these things, you have to be mindful, like, yeah, there are going to be people who are single. And how do you address that without being patronizing? Like, well, Let, let, me, let t- me ask you a question then. If you yeah. were Richard Joel, yeah. and you want to give that message to the married people, but there are also single people in the room, how would you transmit that message? I would say for those who have spouses, thank your wives. You know, and, and you can leave it at that because, yeah, absolutely you should thank your wife. You know, rabbinical school, like any graduate school, you know, is, you know can be difficult, especially when you're married. And so, yeah, don't forget, you know, if, and, you know, like, look, he also said parents. There could have been someone there who did, whose parents weren't alive too. That didn't occur to me either. It was just, it's one of those things where you don't realize until it hits you. And like, okay, now I get it. And now you can sort of empathize with everything else down the line. But a lot of what I did in the rabbinate was me avoiding things that annoyed me. Like the stuff that I got from other rabbis, I Dafka tried not to do. And patronizing stuff over singles was something that drove me nuts. So if I would counsel someone who was unmarried about, you know, dating life, I would never be Pollyannish in terms of optimistic of, oh, of course you're going to get married and everything's going to work out all fine. You know, there are rabbis who do that. Um, and also non-rabbis who do that. And it, it always bugged me because like, you don't know that. That's just not true. And if someone needed to hear that, there were other people who could give that message. But from my perspective, that is pure condescending. You know, you're just condescending and patronizing. Well, what do you do, though, given that it is a truism that's always stated by rabbis and others, that Judaism is centered around the family? So what do we do as a community? I mean, as a macro-Orthodox community, we have plenty of people who are full members of our community who are single, Right. And they, they aren't part of an immediate family in their day-to-day lives. So what do we do? In other words, they're both simultaneously true. So in the function of being a rabbi, for me personally, it was a little weird because my role in the community was firmly established. Title, rabbi, stamp. What I had to do there was, you know, set up there. As far as any other community, I guess this is just an, an approach on, on just a personal level and on a communal level. The availability has to be there. When I was single in Washington Heights, I felt, okay, I'm part of the community, and I was as as much a part of the community as I wanted to be, right? And what does participation in a community mean as, you know, a married couple versus a single? I don't know what people encounter with that of what made you feel excluded in this sort of event. Like if there's a movie night in shul, what does being single or married have to do with that? Family-centric programming, I get, you know, like why you may feel excluded. As far as the rest, let's say you're a man, you know, get a given aliyah, you know, for anything else, I don't know what part of being married is essential to being part at least of the shul experience. For the life cycle stuff, you're not going to tell someone don't have children because someone else feels bad because they can't or because they're single. That's completely unrealistic behind it. For those things, you don't want to handicap other people from, you know, experiencing the family that they have. Trying to 
presented in like a nice enough balanced way where you can feel happy for other people without trying to make other people feel better. And the ones who do, I guess, you know, try to counsel as much as possible about, you know, where they are, not compare as much to other people, which again, none of this is easy, but these would be the sooner approaches I would take that would make it fair to everyone else. In addition to what I mentioned earlier of be mindful of what you say and how you say it for the ones who may feel excluded by what you have to say. Let me ask about the difference. Now you're just saying you're celebrating your five-year anniversary of moving to Israel. The difference of the experience of being an Orthodox single in Israel versus in the United States, admittedly with the caveat that in the United States it must have been different simply because you were a practicing rabbi there and here you're not. So, you know, the differences I found, it's hard to find, like, what are the real variables in play here? Because uh, when I, Aliyah was something I wanted to do. So when I'm in America, I'm like trying to find something who wants to make Aliyah. So that's like, you know, one issue that you have. In Israel, language has been an issue. Trying to speak to people who aren't native English speakers, I found challenging, both you know, native Hebrew speakers and also native French speakers. You know, I've tried that too. It, it, you know, you have a language barrier, or let me rephrase that. I have a language barrier uh, at times. And, you know, I can carry on conversations, but not necessarily with the same depth. And also to put it bluntly, age is an issue. Right now, you've recently turned 42. So once you hit north of 40 or any of the round numbers, you know, the demographics thing kind of changes completely. Um, So it's hard to say what are the real effects and what are not the effects. I can say the whole notion of a shul community is very different in Israel than it is in America. With few exceptions, you don't have that same, you know, at least in Yerushalayim. If you're out in Yeshua, there's only one synagogue, it might be different. But in Yerushalayim, there's so many synagogues. People bounce, I bounce. The synagogue rabbi isn't your primary source of you know, Judaism. You've got many other teachers that you go to. You're surrounded by Judaism in America. You're surrounded by secular, the whole secular world. So you've got one day a week, all Jewish, really intense, and that carries you through. And that, that whole nature of a community is very different. So something I've kind of struggled with a bit here was even finding an in into certain communities because, you know, people keep coming, people keep going. Uh, there have been, been so many places I've been here where, you know, I've been new to a place and no one says hi. Whereas in America, you know, granted, some shows are friendlier than others, but people and I was like, oh, you're new here. We'll come over, we'll say hi, we'll introduce you. And that's a great way of integrating people into a community. In Israel, people don't do that, and I, or at least in Yerushalayim again. Now, it either could be because it's just the culture of Israel, or it could be because of the nature of the communities here that are so transient. People come, people go, you have no idea who's new and who isn't. It's hard to, like when I first moved into Washington Heights in 99, you know, there may have been, you know, 40 young people at most. Anytime someone moved, and not even, probably closer to 20 or 30, you knew when someone was new. And, you know, anytime someone came in, uh, they got immediate invites, they got welcomed, and it was a really great and friendly place. Once it exploded, people keep coming and going. Like I would introduce myself to someone's like, oh, how long have you been here? Six months. And I had never seen them before. That can be challenging, but sometimes if you have a good rabbi that can set the tone, you know, for welcoming people into the community, that would work. But you don't have a communal rav set up in Israel the same way that you do in America for a whole host of reasons. It's not a matter of good or bad. They're just different needs, but that also means there are going to be trade-offs. 
So Rabbi Yuda, we're almost out of time, yeah. but I want to ask you one final question about dating as a rabbi. That must be an interesting yeah. combination. So that, that's been a, you know, I, it's something I struggled with, you know, for a while in different ways. Um, early on, one of the things that I had trouble grasping was, you know, let's say you have a halachic dispute with, you know, a, a spouse, and then it gets a bit weird. It's not like, you know, who's doing laundry, who's doing dishes or chores. It's, well, here's what I think the halacha is. And like, you know, here I've done a whole bunch of research. Person I'm dating might not have. Right. So is that a fair exchange? Like, you know, do I talk to her as a peer? You know, that's, you know, that gets a bit weird. Um, you know, and so that was one thing about like, how do you set up halakhic compromises when you may both have very strong opinions, but one has more knowledge and more training, not meant as an insult. You would hope someone who went to rabbinical school knows more than someone who doesn't. That's part of why you go to rabbinical school. So that's one thing. I've also met people who Dafka didn't want to date rabbis because of the things that we talked about at the beginning of not wanting anything to deal with the pulpit or anything that goes along with that or the whole lifestyle. And I know others who, you know, Dafka looked for it because that's what they wanted. When I was at Yeshiva University, one of the admins told a class, you know, remember, if you're single, you're not just looking for a wife, you're looking for a Rebbitson. And, you know, you put it that way, it seems on one hand, a little bit strange, odd, if not sexist. On the other hand, on a practical level, he's absolutely right. You know, I know rabbis who have gotten hired on the strength of their wives. I've known rabbis who have gotten fired because of their wives. And, you know, that can change the entire professional dynamic as well, even assuming you can get past the dating stage. Uh, I know one, not going to mention his name, but one relatively, you know, well-known rabbi whose wife, you know, put a clause that he can never take a pulpit because she just, she knew better. You know, so that can be a bit challenging. She actually put a clause in there. Yeah, agreement. I don't know if it was like officially in the ketubah, but like, you know, that, that was... That was on, part of the deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, and I kind of understand that and I understand like why people run away from it. I don't know on the other hand if like people say rabbi and say like, oh, wow, you know, you know get, get so enamored with a title, but that's... Yeah, again, like, I don't know women's reaction to that. And to me, like, so many people have the title rabbi these days. Like, you know, is it really that big of a deal anymore? Like, <laughs> lots of people have it. Standards can kind of, you know, It's one thing to have the title, but it's another thing to actually be a rabbi in a shul. Though. Right. That's an entirely so, different story. Right. So I had also mentioned to the shul, like, very explicitly, I'm not dating congregants because I wanted to be friendly. And wires can get crossed between friendly and flirting. And by me stating my intentions, I'm just going to be friendly. None of this is flirting. And I think in an odd way, the fact that I was single may have even helped because people may have been a little bit more on guard. Like when you hear about all of the sex scandals involving, you know, uh, the pulpit rabbis, at least, you know, they were all married rabbis, you know, the few single rabbis, like it was pretty much straightforward. It also helped, I should add, that I didn't have an office in the shul. It was a very small building. So we, I would always have meetings in coffee houses so that avoided yichud and yeah like so your singlehood actually was was an advantage in this way in a sense yeah because you know even if everyone had like that little extra you know barriers like that i think those are good things in a sense yeah you know just you know and i'm totally okay with that and i think in some ways that may have actually helped because people may have been more open more honest not have to worry about you know wires crossed or signals crossed and you know, and it worked out fine. And I was friendly with whoever. And, you know, again, I made myself available. They wanted to talk. They did. And it just avoided a whole mess of complications. I know I said I was done asking questions. I have just <laughs> one, one final thing to ask you, Rabbi Uter. 
if you could give a message, and I say this with the caveat that I mentioned before, quoting Tali Rosenbaum, that singlehood is not a demographic. Yeah. But if you could give a message to people in communities of how to treat singles, what would you like to change? What would you like them to do differently? The only attitude I would change is if people have a mentality that single people are somehow defective, uh, either because of their status or with people the assumption, oh, someone's been single, therefore there must be something wrong with them, which does come up. It was something which I know I've encountered myself, where, you know, I passed a certain age, oh, the person was never married, where not being married at all is seen as uh, a pagan, is, is seen as a, you know, black mark against you, as opposed to like being married and being divorced, not to correlate being single just because someone is single with any other issue. Maybe they have issues, maybe they don't, but all singlehood means is for one reason or another, you haven't found someone who also wants to be with you. And it could be you might have been ready at some point in the past and the other person wasn't interested. If that happens, you know, th there's that element of marriage that is completely out of your control, right? It's not entirely a single's decision in order to be single. And it is also possible that the only options they had were terrible. I try to tell people like your dating pool is much smaller than you realize. Let's say Washington Heights, let's say there are, you know, 250, you know, single people of the opposite gender you can marry. Your dating pool isn't 250. Your dating pool is only the number of people who are willing to go out with you. That's going to be a much smaller number. So given that it's not just a matter of choice, there's also a matter of circumstance. Just to you know, remind people, simply being single is not, it's not a character defect. You know, and that would be more for the married couples than for everyone else. And like, you know, you want to invite, invite people over, which is fine, like make them feel part of the community, but not with a sense of, oh, this person's a neb who, you know, otherwise, you know, can't do anything, you know, let people live their lives. And also, you know, when you treat singles as singles, don't just treat singles as singles, treat singles as individuals, which is perhaps even more important, you know, beyond just, you know, people being single. If you know someone, know that person as an individual, not as just someone being unmarried. This has been terrific. Thank you so oh. much for joining me today. You have a very strong social media following. It could be that everybody listening already follows you, but if someone wants <laughs> to follow you on Twitter... The Twitter handle is at J-Uter, at uh, J-Y-U-T-E-R. Uh, website is joshuter.com. Uh, I don't write there as often as I'd like, but there's some good stuff up there too. Well, thank you very, very much for joining me today. This has been very enlightening. I learned a lot. Thank you for having me. Most enjoyable. I'm Scott Kahn, and you've been listening to The Orthodox Conundrum. Please like the Jewish Coffee House Facebook page and follow me on Twitter at Jewish Coffee H. We're also completely revamping the JewishCoffeehouse.com site, so look for that in the near future. I'm Scott Kahn. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeehouse.com. <laughs>